Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. Hi, everyone. It's me, Sister Julia. And if you've been listening to Messy Jesus Business for a long time, you will notice that we're going to do a little switch up now. We're doing something very unusual. And we have an amazing interview with Molly Burhans. There's so much good content here. We're going to release it to you in two episodes. So listen now for the first one and tune in again in two weeks for episode two. Another thing. Though Molly's voice is understandable, our recording of her is sometimes a little glitchy. Sorry about that. I'm here with Molly Burhans, who is an award-winning Catholic environmentalist, cartographer, and social entrepreneur. She is the founder of Goodlands, an organization whose mission is to mobilize the Catholic Church to use its land holdings for environmental and humanitarian good. Burhans was the chief cartographer for the first unified global map of the church, which premiered at the Vatican in 2016. She is one of Encyclopedia Britannica's 2022's 20 Under 40, a winner of the Sierra Club's Earth Care Award, a UN Young Champion of the Earth, a National Geographic Emerging Explorer, and an Ashoka Fellow. Molly is a visiting professor at Canisius College and adjunct professor of urban design at Columbia University Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. And more importantly (laughs) than all those accolades, Molly is just a wonderful human who loves God and the church and and all of God's creation and is trying to do her best to honor and care for all that God has made. Yeah, I'm super honored to be here with you, Molly. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you so much for having me, Sister Julia. I'm so excited to be here as well. I've been following your podcast for a while, and also I feel like Messy Jesus Business is such a resonant name (laughs) for just being human in this messy world and trying to figure things out. Oh, I'm so glad you get it. (laughs) That helps. (laughs) Your bio is very impressive, of course. Yet life is real (laughs) and and life is actually an adventure. And although you have this shining professional bio, I also know the reality of you're a human who struggles and deals with suffering and challenges of faithfulness and you stick at it. So I'm hoping we can explore some of that juiciness during this conversation, but I'd love to start off by just sort of naming what I see from here. So I know you were raised by scientists and you grew up in a city, right? I was born in New York City, but grew up in Buffalo, New York. But not like on a farm in the country, huh? No, downtown Buffalo, yeah. So you were born in an urban landscape, you were raised in an urban landscape, and you developed this great passion for lands and for the earth and for geography. I'm really curious about how all these things sort of came together for you. Like, was there a moment or was it a gradual unfolding where you're like, oh, land, justice, God, the church, like, <laughs> like these things need to be working together for the common good. What was the adventure of coming to know who you are and how you're meant to be serving God and God's people? There was no aha moment or okay. flash of inspiration for this. It was definitely a slow unfolding when I look back, 
I'm so just shocked and blown away to be where I am today. Yeah. It also was very logical in its progression. After First Communion, I stopped going to church every week and our family, I guess, fell away a bit from the church. And a lot of that was because Boston Globe Spotlight was coming out then. And there was just so much of the ugliness of the broken institution that understandably, especially for parents of young kids, you know, they didn't want to be involved. As I grew up throughout high school, I ended up going to Mercyhurst for dance and, and dropping out the first time I dropped out of a Catholic college, right? I have another time. (laughs) My whole identity was kind of balled up in that. And I had to really figure out who I was and what my place was in the world. And I would say I kind of had this almost born again, bohemian moment around that time, because I had really been questioning and I'd always been kind of agnostic. I really just started to have a bit more of a bias, distaste for Christians Mm. and even Catholics. It was very culture shock, the opposite direction of many people go to college from a kind of insular Mm. upbringing, I think. And I was going from downtown Buffalo, going to a magnet public school with huge diversity to this very suburban Midwest population. And there was a lot of, I would just say, not very niceness Mm. or charitable uh, kind of behavior that I was used to. (laughs) Yeah, the return um, to Buffalo. So I I returned back home and uh, totally have no idea what to do. I get a job in an art gallery and Mm -hmm. I'm making a lot of art. um, And I uh, started practicing Buddhism Mm -hmm. and I ran into this kid from high school who had um, started a squat. Buffalo is full of abandoned properties. I should note, like many Rust Belt cities, at the time, the city had a homesteading program where you could get a house for a dollar because they just wanted people to occupy all these abandoned spaces and fix them up. So he and a bunch of punks took over this mansion that was part of some holding company. It was decrepit, and they started fixing it up. And so I found kind of community there, and it was intersectional with the arts community I was in, and they were freegans. So they figured out, as they are actually quoted in a news article about it in one place, decadent poverty, (laughs) because they could live pretty well off of the waste of society. Now, the only thing was, I should note, still being on your parents' health insurance was necessary for this, at least in my case. They hosted travelers, and they had very strict rules, obviously, to make this work. So very strict with drugs, not being allowed in the house, very strict if you stayed more than 48 hours, you had to start fixing up the house. So the house was like this hodgepodge fix-up. We started building bikes for kids in the community and doing guerrilla gardening. And what I saw during this time in my life was that as we transformed the property, it transformed us. Ah. And it transformed also the entire neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I was only involved for a year or two. Life got too busy back in school and traveling and stuff. It was so profound. And it was my first glimpse into if you transform property, it can transform a neighborhood, it can transform a community and can transform ourselves. And while I was there, I discovered in the Ronald Reagan Free Library, (laughs) Dorothy Day's writing. And it was my first exposure to a Catholic who had the beautiful theology and Catholic social teaching. And I thought, my gosh, this this Peter Moran guy, maybe I'll be like that. (laughs) 
So at the time, I'm studying biology and philosophy. Yeah. At Canisius, my mom is a professor there. So I had this great okay. getup where I could go there and take as many classes as I wanted for free until I was 30. Mm. No pressure could take any kind of round of courses. I should note, at the age of 14, I started publishing scientific illustration professionally, oh. um, not biological like for med stuff, since you need a board license. But I just played in these design programs since I was like six years old. I love mm -hmm. them. And I had no idea that there was any useful career there, potentially. And so he asked me to do something and make a figure for a publication. And then his friends saw it and they started asking me and I would do it in exchange for uh, their syllabi or them giving me a free lecture about as nerdy as it can get or getting paid <laughs> um, or underpaid. It. And so I was exposed to science and, and really that kind of loved exploring it visually and through art. Mm -hmm. I was just exploring these things and philosophy really started to dive into this so cliche question of what is the meaning of life? Mm -hmm. And I was in this postmodern, nebulous, absurdist wormhole trying to figure out even where I ontologically had any ground in my entire worldview. I was really going deep. I also worked in a lab at a research institution. We were tasked to design an experiment, and I totally missed the memo that this wasn't like a PhD level, make a novel <laughs> discovery experiment. And I got obsessed with naked mole rats. This is funny. Like St. Ignatius says, find God in all things. Let me tell you, the ugliest creature of the world. I'm sorry, God. I know no creatures are ugly, but like naked mole rats are like, wow, that's one ugly little burrow puppy there. They're very very interesting. They live in a very like high carbon dioxide environment. They don't really get cancer. Yeah. They live a really absurdly long amount of time. So I was thinking about aging theory and like trying to mathematicize, you know, biology. So I was like really thinking about this and it just hit me. I was sitting at my desk and I just thought, oh my God, what if we could cure cancer? What if we could really stop aging? That's now a big area of research, especially among like Silicon Valley people, you know, hacking aging. And what if we could live forever? And uh, it was just like, I kind of had a total existential crisis from questioning that. And I was like, why would anyone want to live forever? You know, back to that question. The naked mole rat consideration, I was just filled with this love that was so just infinite and no word could even touch it other than the word God. Mm. And it flipped my world upside down because <laughs> I just love this. all of a sudden God was not only real, but the absolutely most real thing I had ever encountered in my life. And love was God and is God. And the only reason why anyone would want to live forever yeah. would be love. Yeah. And it's also the only reason why we want to live tomorrow. Yeah. And we're put here to love. We're made to love. The meaning of life as love was a good enough answer it was the best answer I could encounter. And it was the first time I think philosophically, personally, I ever had an answer that felt complete. So, of course, I took myself to the doctor directly after that. <laughs>
<laughs> that was my first step. I was like, okay, let me go to the doctor. So I went to the doctor and they're like, what, what seems to be the problem? I was like, um, here's a psychiatrist. I believe in God. <laughs> I know. I was like, this, this is pretty and poetic, but I think I've lost my marbles. Right. Um, and the psychiatrist, I remember is like, do you believe you are God? And I was like, oh, no way, man. And he was like, do you believe there's any other problem here? And I was like, oh yeah, this Jesus character allows me to exist within this love. And so he ran some tests. He was like, do you think you are Jesus? You know, second question. I was like, oh, definitely not. And uh, so I was proven to not be totally insane, much to my uh, chagrin at the time. And I was like, I guess I um, am a theist. (laughs) And I might be a Christian. Oh, my goodness. So this was like early 20s. Yeah, this is my early 20s. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm a Christian, but at least I'm not a Catholic, you know? Oh, of course. That was the the line of thought. Mm -hmm. Of course. So somehow, though, you came to love the church, too. I know. I know. (laughs) How did that happen? Well, it's funny. So, you know, like, once the satisfactory meaning of life being love, the next question, everything shifts to, okay, so how the heck do I do that best? Right? Yes. And that's when you get discernment and trying to follow God um, and just growing awareness and relationship there. After my conversion, I had saved up enough money to travel and I went to Guatemala for six months. It was like 20, 21. It was my first time solo traveling internationally. And I met and saw, you know, real abject poverty I met Christians that were actually doing really, really God's work and um, came to terms with the fact that I was a Christian on that trip, grew up a lot, saw a lot of things. And when I returned to school, like I had that amazing arrangement, so no tuition. I dropped the bio degree and I just studied philosophy. I started volunteering a ton outside of work in the lab. And on illustration, I was volunteering in old folks' home. I was also volunteering in, in homeless ministries and food ministries. And, and it just shook me that we were giving people such poor quality food who are already very vulnerable. Canned stuff, with lots of sugar, yeah. lots of processing. And these are yeah. populations that already have a lot of social determinants of health working against their own health right. and increased rates of things like diabetes. And I also, at the same time, started really diving into different Christian churches, attending different churches, reading theology. I got a Jesuit spiritual director yeah. to start doing Ignatius's uh, 19th annotation. Mm-hmm. When I was Buddhist, I did a lot of silent meditation, like an hour a day at times. I wanted to do praying, but I didn't know how in mm-hmm. the Christian way, really. I started going to Mass every day. I committed to reading the whole Bible front to back. I wasn't taking the Eucharist. I was sitting in the back of church. Mm -hmm. The first question, I think, after you feel God's love so profoundly for me was, how can I even stay in this world that we have? Like, Not like the world, like physically, I mean like socially, because you really cannot exist within the systems we have without causing harm. Mm God is so big. I mean, at least for me, it was scary initially, but then the fear obviously was dispelled with Christ there because I could just be so myself. But the tragedy of sin was so real, just my own sin and others. And it wasn't like a, you know, a Catholic profound guilt type of like 
bad me. It was just like, man, this sucks. Mm. Okay, is it time to go be a stylite? I'll see you guys later. I'm going to go live in a cave or on top of a pillar because I can't even buy food at your grocery store without harming the planet and people, right? Yeah. Oh my goodness, Molly. I'm resonating so much. Like, I feel like you're describing lands I've lived on. (laughs) Like, it's... What I'm thinking about is I remember... I probably had it more like in a sunny sort of way because it's just my disposition. (laughs) Like when you're talking about the bigness of God and sort of the mystery of like, how does one fit within that bigness and the complexity of the systems once the blinders are off and you have that consciousness and you're so aware of like every action is impacting. So how do you exist in that? I remember I was in college and I was reading Living Buddha, Living Christ by Thich Nhat Hanh. And I remember I fell asleep and had a dream. I was examining the end of a thread, <laughs> like like the, somehow, like under a microscope or something. And on this, the end of this thread, I saw the Holy Family. <laughs> And I woke up and I felt so happy and I was like, yes, God is as giant of, as the universe and God is in the tiniest and the smallest of things. And somehow that gave me a freedom to rest and to relax into it and just be like, okay, what is mine to do here? It started to gradually, like, as you're describing, life just starts to happen one thing after another. And, you know, you're exploring your questions, you're exploring your passions, you're being true to who you are. I mean, that's what I'm really hearing in your story of conversion is like, it was a time of exploration and discovery. And along the way, you arrived. (laughs) You're like, oh, now I'm this person, huh? I think Jesus allowed me it's it's not a freedom because it can I think we see a lot of it being weirdly twisted and abused. Not a freedom to sim, but a freedom to be involved in the system and yeah. be aware. And it's not like a free pass, right? It's like you do your examination of conscience and you become aware and you try to improve every day, whether it's your consumption patterns or your social interactions. And Jesus allows that freedom to really be real with yourself and your flaws and your participation without folding in on yourself and freaking out. Or also, I would say, you know, there's this confidence of what if we weren't supposed to keep participating in the system and we were called to desert father, desert mother life. Mm. There's always a freedom, though, that I feel from Christ of this is what I've discerned and at the end of my life, at the end of every day, even if I was totally wrong about everything. I have full faith that Christ and God still love me and are yeah. still there. At the time, I also had co-founded my first company, which is still operating today. Oh, what's that? It's called Grow Operative, and it's a worker-owned cooperative, and it's an indoor vertical farm. Oh. We sell fresh microgreens, which are nutrient that's um, like lettuce, basil. We also have tilapia, and the waste of the fish is highly nitrogenated and has nutrients, and it feeds the plants, and then it circles back through and the clean water goes to the fish, very simply. Is that in Buffalo? It is in Buffalo, yes. Yeah, yeah. And if you come here, you can find it in stores. I obviously don't have any shares in the company because it's worker-owned. It was one of the first ones in New York State. We had to get legislation changed, and it's a very cool business model. Worker cooperatives were kind of, uh, there was a priest who I'm totally blanking on in Spain who helped 
establish this model. So in a publicly traded company, just for people unfamiliar with this, um, people buy stocks and the profit increases the value of those stocks. And if you own the majority of stocks, then you essentially can dictate the direction of the company more or less. Considerations for a board as well. If it's worker owned, the workers own all the stocks. So the more money the company makes, the more money the workers make. And they also have a say in the company. It's a very cool business model in certain circumstances. For some things, it doesn't really work in my opinion, but for this, it does. Mm -hmm. So that was like moving from punk squatter to solidarity economy business co-founder. And it was using unused industrial space to address food security. So it's this continuum. And I was doing St. Ignatius's exercises. I had this Hegelian kind of arrangement, you could say, with two priests as I was in faith formation. So my spiritual director was so totally the heart of Christ. But when I asked him really hard questions, it was hard to get like very strict and be able to have a dialectic uh, debate. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And this other priest is a friend of mine. He still is the hard thing, but he's really hard-headed to some people. Mm-hmm. But I really appreciate him because I can really ask and dive into these questions and really go on the intellectual side. So they both were so good. It was just a blessing to have this complimentary kind of the spiritual director and my, I don't know, my debater. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, so I was going to Mass every day but not taking the Eucharist, mm-hmm. not in RCA yet. And I was also going to a monastery with these awesome Benedictines regularly and co-founded the company at the same time. So at the monastery, I'd look out and they had like hundreds of acres of land Mm -hmm. and they had properties downtown with ministries I'd help with. And all I could think of was from all this awesome regenerative agriculture stuff I was learning about was like, gosh, we could enhance all the ministries with this community if we manage their land better and it could bring revenue streams with sustainable forest management to them. They could address invasive species issues. There's so much that could be done with this to multiply their ministry's impact. The unused houses downtown for homeless ministry, especially with a lot of the single unwed mothers that we supported. And so Mm. Land for Good was cogitating. Mm. Of course, I was like not Catholic yet, right? I guess I'm Christian and I believe in God, okay. But at least I'm not Catholic. And I'm going to a monastery thinking about being a nun and going to mass every day. But I am like (laughs) the queen of denial, obviously, at this point, (laughs) getting to RCIA. I'm like talking with a vocations director about being a nun. She's like, you know, you need to kind of like be confirmed (laughs) and be Catholic. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure about that. But I I like the nun thing. Um, (laughs) And and so I lost the argument and I, I became Catholic. So when were you actually confirmed? Like, how old were you? Do you remember? I was 22 or 23. Okay, 20, okay. Yeah. 2013. Uh-huh. Were you already in grad school at that point and working, like studying cartography? No, I was in Buffalo working on the company and okay. finishing my degree because I had done things like take ancient Go, Greek Guatemala. for two years. So yeah. <laughs> took advantage of the extra time. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But along the way, you came to know a home within cartography as a way that your passions and your gifts could really shine and be used for the greater good, even more so. So were you into maps when you were a kid? (laughs) You know, I I think I I was. I was really into images. Yeah. Like, Uh um, it took me a while to, like, 
get the reading thing down pat fast. Like mm. I was a pretty slow reader. Um, and scientific illustration is a lot like cartography. When I was studying biology, though I didn't get a biology degree, I studied it a bit. It was very hard for me to understand the pedagogy as it was taught. It was very typical pre-med, memorize a ton, don't synthesize, at least in the intro classes, the 101s, the 102s. And my brain does not like that. <laughs> so I would spend hours and hours drawing materials. And I started layering pieces of like tracing paper, mm. drawing the, the systems of the human body and imagining the body as a system of layers of cell types, of genetic expressions, of signaling types, paracrine, endocrine, of different developmental kind of cell cell lines, germ lines. And that's pretty much what maps are, yeah. right? GIS is layering and looking at the world. So mm. it naturally came out of kind of this physiological information system way of thinking. And it was how my brain just thinks mm -hmm. really is in, in maps. And the visual is so tied with not just knowledge and it's interesting epistemic connections with truth and understanding, but also with beauty mm -hmm. and wonder. Just, I remember when I was studying biology, it was really intense for me because mm -hmm. I just found it so beautiful. I wanted to write poetry and make mm -hmm. art and it, it just, the, the natural world around us, and so many saints have echoed this, you can find God reflected so much in his creation and just the awesomeness mm -hmm. of life. Yeah. You know, I want to... Oh, like so, I said, just extend from that. Yes, yes. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I, You know, I just love that you're describing it that way because it actually connects to the question I wanted to ask next, which is like, what was going on in your soul? <laughs> or is map making actually a spiritual practice? Um, yeah. And so, but I think you're describing it that way. You're already answering that question and describing how the art of noticing God's creation and honoring it by the images that you create, you're actually reverencing it. And that fosters a spirit of awe and wonder, which sounds like prayer, Molly. It is. There have been so many echoes of praying constantly in our great theologians, saints and role models, and um, the act of prayer kind of being integrated into song or art or in these other practices. And I think sometimes to like Tehar de Chardin, moving towards this omega point of the kingdom of God, of celebration. For me, I remember when I was studying, just struck by the wonder and the mystery of science. But uh, another scary question, the first scary question being, what if we could live forever? And what if you figured that out? And that leading to conversion for me, but also what if we could know everything, mm -hmm. right? Which I don't, think we can. There's mystery, which is great. But what if we reach the limit of scientific discovery, which is a totally hypothetical question and likely unanswerable. Um, but, uh, you know, that that scared me because the pursuit of truth was part of the prayer for me. And I realized there's something so much more even than the sacredness of knowledge and celebrating that part of our human existence and, and dimension of learning. Beyond that, even there's an aspect in this prayer of not just the learning and the growth, which I'd say is more process and sometimes a little purgatorial, but um, of 
the heaven side, the paradise side, which is just pure celebration. Um, and my gosh, I have wept making maps. You uh, have wept? Yeah, wept making maps from the from just the mm. awe of mm. of of you know this amazing creation we have. And I think at the end of the day, you know, whatever paradise is like or wherever our mind is, there is there's this celebration, just absolute celebration that comes with it. And in our broken, fallen world currently, though, there's also a solemnity, almost like an examine, because when you map, it's not always just, wow, look at this beautiful ecosystem, or look at how God so delicately placed these rocks here that evolved to make these creatures. It's also, like, tragic. It's, oh my gosh, we are really, really, really hurting <laughs> so much through our unprudential choices with land and spatially connected decisions. Yeah. And there's so much we could do that's better, though. So I studied ecological design, and my first project was a site-scale regenerative farm. So regenerative is like sustainability on steroids. If you keep things sustainable, they aren't sustainable with how things are now. Regeneration takes kind of the flows of a, a natural system, and instead of designing against nature, we design with nature, and it becomes not only something that is self-sustaining, but self-repairing, yeah. anti-fragile. I know, it's so great. I love it. And and abundant. Yeah. It's, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Regenerative yeah, yeah. agriculture is like, oh. oh, it's so exciting. Yeah. Can yeah. I just tell you that my community, so that the Franciscan Sisters Perpetual Adoration in La Crosse, we have some very beautiful land that we're trying to really care for in the ways that we're called to. And it's big, big work. And one of the decisions my community made in the past few years, which I'm super grateful for, is hiring a master's level ecologists who lead the regenerative design of the land. And so instead of just having a forester like clear out invasive species, she is reconstructing and rebuilding the soil after the erosion. So it's phenomenal when she gives a tour and explains the science of it. And she's like, this used to be an oak savanna and now it's this. And sure, sisters built a walnut grove, but like that's not natural so this is what we're doing to regenerate it back to what it should be and i mean it's a, it's beautiful i have a question for you so did she make a map i don't know i mean i've seen a map right i've seen a very simple map of our land yes it's not i would imagine i've also seen images of your work and i suspect we need help <laughs> and and I'm going to talk. A lot of people do. I'm trying to get capacity up here. There's so much demand and there's so much need. But um, yes. so that map is really the foundation. Yes. So we're starting at a single site because what I do with Goodlands scales up from that. But a single site, a good example would be you see people that are like, oh, we want to plant 100 trees, right? If you plant those trees in shade and they need sun, they're going to die if you plant them in dry soil and they're wetland trees. So right. you have to know what's going on, right? Yeah. You wouldn't plant a palm tree in Alaska for an extreme example. And so there's a lot of data available out there. There's a lot you can do with 3D models that exist. The data is just getting higher resolution, which means tinier and tinier pixels. It's like a really high HD TV, except for geospatial data mm. versus like old pixelated stuff. And you know, understanding soil type, legal setbacks, you can't plant certain distances from a road or build 
understanding history. You don't want to build a place where you're going to plant food to eat if there was a dry cleaner there. Um, understanding indigenous history and reconciliation potentials, understanding water and hydrology and beyond. There's more. So to understand all this stuff in a way that doesn't just totally overwhelm the brain, maps are absolutely the best way to do that. Yeah. And then you can do strategic planning. You can understand the microclimates of your sites and really be smart about it based on all these analyses and design based on what is there, fix what's broken, keep what works, build the future, sorry. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that's lovely and beautiful. And I thought I would take that back to the community I was discerning with and I'd just go be the farmer nun or the park ranger nun. I started learning the Catholic Church is the largest non-governmental network of, well, it's the largest network of healthcare. 26% of healthcare facilities globally are run by Catholic entities. It's the largest non-governmental networks of education, mm -hmm. largest network of humanitarian aid, second only to all UN member organizations. So under that umbrella, many of those are Catholic. And so I just very naively, I was like, oh man, it must be the largest network of conservation too. So I'm going to go find the park ranger nuns and the Virginia egg nuns. So along the way, you're like, okay, Catholic church, where's your parks? <laughs> where's your conservation centers? And you were let down. <laughs> oh my gosh. Again, it was kind of like going to a doctor after your conversion. I just thought I lost my ability to do research because mm. it seemed so obvious. Mm. And the more I found out, the more I was like, okay, so we're the largest non-governmental network of land holdings. No one is helping us mm. do this. And I started calling diocese and religious orders. And that's when I was struck that this isn't just a, you know, conversion of land to embody our mission issue, this is actually a digital transformation issue because our records were not together. They were in paper. Most dioceses didn't even know what they owned in a single Excel spreadsheet. And site scale design, which I love, it's really unaffordable. It costs 50,000 bucks to get all that kind of analyses, land titling easily, easily that much for a master plan for a larger property. Mm. And so my second semester in grad school, I analyzed 30,000 parcels all at once for um, pollinator habitat potential and built an algorithm. And I was like, this is the way, this is what we need to do at scale. It can make it affordable for religious communities. It can give them the foundational information they need. And we can actually even do computational design on this for individual sites. We could do thousands all at once, right? And I didn't realize that that approach to networks of land with high resolution data was totally groundbreaking academically and novel. I was like, oh, this is just everything was just like logical. OK, let's go. So and, you, um, isn't it fun when you do great things on accident? <laughs> it is. It is. It is definitely shocking. Back to I the god like, of surprises. <laughs> Exactly. And the goddess surprises too about the park ranger does because, you know, the only conservation org I found was St. Cattery. They're awesome. And if you're listening to this, go donate to them because they're totally underfunded, like everyone in the Catholic environmental space. If you're listening to this and you have a ton of money, come talk to me about it because I can tell you all these groups need, need your support. Yeah. But that's a tangent back to the, the point. I, it was like I was running up a mountain expecting to meet my people at the top. Like really just, I must have Googled wrong. And everyone I talked to, I didn't have a big, powerful network of Catholics. It was like random Jesuits from Canisius and some cool nuns. Um, and they kept connecting me with all these high level Catholics because they were like also just mystified. They're like, yeah, this God exists. They will know. The head of the LCWR will know. The head of the USCCB will know. And it just every single time I went to these meetings, they're like, wow, this is a really good idea. Yes, yeah, somebody's got to be doing it. And like it went all the way up to the Pope. <laughs> when I was 26, first time I met him, I was like, boy, howdy. Um, 
yeah. So what was we that? We don't like? have anyone doing this land stuff, right. and we have more land under our umbrella yeah. institutions than uh, anyone. And so I, I sheepishly, I always think of Mary with her beautiful yes. My yes was much more like, well, I guess so. Um, still totally convinced that I was going to find somebody doing this because no way. And, and so I found a good lens. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Wow. Wow. And now you're busy making maps and hopefully changing the church from the inside out little by little. It's a process. <laughs> it's a process. Right. I heard the story that when you met Pope Francis and shared your very logical question with him, that it actually led to him offering you a position in, in the Curia. What's that yes. story? God of surprises. So back in 2016, my explorations led me to Rome. Thankfully, as a fairly recent convert, I didn't understand how absurd what I was doing was. <laughs> <laughs> so I had begun working with students at Yale School of Environment, and I wanted to classify dioceses at the least. So that if we worked and did mapping of properties in one diocese and applied all these algorithms, we could take it to a diocese that was similar, had similar concerns and make this much cheaper and scalable for dioceses. Because part of me is very business minded and trying to get things more affordable for dioceses and religious orders. So we need this map of dioceses. And at the time I'd been offered to lead one of the top GIS, so that's the tool systems to digital mapping labs in the entire world. Mm -hmm. So they had just finished a nationwide map of green infrastructure with the EPA, looking at every single parcel in the U.S., which is that data set alone is multi-million dollar for parcels for the U.S. And it's messy, messy business, let me tell you. And they had also uh, worked with World Health and CDC on admin three boundaries. So that's like sub-sub-national, like county level for Mm. uh, West Africa during the Ebola Mm. outbreak. so making boundaries is a very, very specialized, very complicated uh, process. And I went to Rome and I thought there's absolutely no way. Yeah, like this is the whole story, right? No way nobody else isn't doing this. No way this isn't happening. And I thought I had made a graphic prototype, kind of like not real diocese boundaries or anything, but I'd just drawn out, you know, boundaries of jurisdictions and shown it to Sean Callahan. I had met with him, the CEO of Catholic Relief Services. And he was like, yeah, this is really valuable and important. And I all these people I met along the way were like, yeah, this is useful. And Kara, God bless them, they do such good work at Georgetown, didn't even have a a digital GIS map of dioceses in the U.S. They had a PDF of dioceses, and that was the most there was other than a GIMP, which is like open source Photoshop map of provinces, which was on Wikipedia, and it was very wrong. Um, And so I, I was like shocked. So I had been offered um, to speak at a CRS conference and proposed this, and uh, I used my flight, because I'm totally poor, um, to get to Rome um, to try to land a meeting to see if they had this map before I took over this lab, because this project was going to cost millions of dollars mm. of resources to, to do, and I didn't want to replicate it. And also I thought, there's no way that the Curia is operating without even maps of Episcopal conferences like USCCB, that level, nevertheless provinces, nevertheless dioceses, there's no way that they are. And if it's not public, there might be a very real security reason Uh why these aren't out there. Because they will illuminate 
and visualize the church and its governance across the world in a way that's never been done before. So I went to Rome. I was too poor to stay in a monastery, which is like ironic given my work, right? Land for good. And I stayed in the melting pot youth hostel for 15 euro a night. And I'm doing my first project, Mapping Vincentians, pro bono. Um, you know, I had been just begging, 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 begging to even do work for free mm. since nobody understood the value of it. Mm. And God bless Vincentians, you got me going. And so I'm like sitting there writing software, working with their online resources and mapping it. And I'm in this hangout room in this youth hostel full of all these hungover smoky euro trippers and i'm like calling the vatican switchboard i'm trying to get a meeting and i somehow <laughs> land a meeting with all these like high level prelates and my first one was with cardinal turkson uh in the piazza san Cristo, and uh, he was so nice i was so darn intimidated we talked about ignatian spirituality I showed him the prototype and talked about Laudatusi, and he was like, yeah, this would be really useful. We don't have it here. And he told me about how the first time he had encountered maps memorably was as a child in Ghana when the mining companies would come in to take people's lands because mm. maps are critical for identifying mineral deposits and stuff. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. And then I got meetings in the Secretary of State and um, it's in the third logia of the Apostolic Palace, which is where all the popes lived before, well, not all, but since it was built, that's been the papal residence until the pope um, chose the more humble Dome of Santa Marta. And you go up to this hall and it's covered in the most exquisite fresco maps. Mm. And one side opens up in these windows with these sheer curtains and this delicate light coming in opens up into a courtyard. The other wall is covered in maps and I'm walking down this hallway and I'm led into the secretary of state and into an atrium with two like gold or silver plated hemispheres of the world on the wall. Like I could have just died and gone to cartographer's heaven. I didn't even know. So I'm like, oh, yeah. And I sit down with these monsignors, the second in charge to then Cardinal Bichu, Archbishop Bichu, which is there's funny stories about that. Uh, Mr. Property on Trial stuff. Oy vey. Um <laughs> And I show them the prototypes and I'm like, can I speak with your geographer? And they're like, we don't have one. And I'm like, can I speak with your cartographer? And they're like, we don't have one. And I'm like, do you have any maps like this? And they were like, no. I'm like, okay, so when's the last update? And I was like, the only thing I can find is this Atlas Hierarchicus. So that was published in 1901 and it's subcontinental. So basically it's broken up. There's no standard projection, which basically means it's a fancy doodle and it's not unified. And I was like, when's the last update? And they gesture to the frescoes. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> wow. So this isn't just property records we're talking about. The whole church is not up to date with its record keeping, pretty much even its jurisdiction. So I show them the prototype and I tell them about the lab. And I'm like, is there any reason why I shouldn't do this? Any security reason? I knew if they said no, I would not be able to do that with the lab. Um, and they talked in Italian for like 10 minutes and I just sat there, my mind racing. Uh, can you get excommunicated for asking a question? What am I doing here as a 26 year old woman sitting in the Apostolic Palace with all these high level prelates with cardinals walking around the hall? And my mind was racing and they looked back at me and they were like, why, yes, this would be useful for everything. And I was like, yeah, I'll be back. <laughs> so that was the start of the Vatican. Yeah, it was definitely... Um, 
shocking. <laughs> uh huh. And intimidating. Uh huh. Got surprises. More and more. Yeah. Our conversation with Molly will continue in the next episode, which will come out on February 21st. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamskans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.